Happy beginning of Advent. My name is Dan McDonald. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my uh, pleasure to welcome you to our service wherever you are in your journey of life and faith. We are glad that you are here. Um, we are reflecting this month on this idea of Advent. And so we'll be looking at various scriptures that talk about this idea. And so this morning, please look to your screen while Sharon reads the relevant scripture from Isaiah chapter 9. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 9, verse 2 to 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us the son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're starting an Advent series today. Advent is a word that means arrival. It means something or someone has arrived. In Christian terminology, it begins the Christmas season because it signifies the arrival into human history of God Himself. And I submit to you, this is great news. Though our culture generally is skeptical that God exists, and though our culture says we generally believe that the world was created by time and random chance, somehow deep in our hearts we long for deeper meaning, deeper purpose, deeper peace. Alva Murdal is a fascinating figure in history. She is not particularly religious. She was a pioneering woman. She was a Swedish sociologist, diplomat, activist, catalyst of the modern social welfare state in Sweden, an author, a politician, and the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. And she said this about human longing, despite not being particularly religious. She said, the longing for peace is rooted in the hearts of all, but the striving, which at present has become so insistent, cannot lay claim to such an ambition as leading the way to eternal peace or solving all disputes among nations. What Ms. Merdell is saying is that we all long for a certain and beautiful hope, but we cannot think it will actually arrive in any lasting or eternal way. We should expect to be frustrated at the deepest longings of our heart, for there's no lasting eternal satisfaction of those longings. We wish we could have a solid hope, but we shouldn't wish too hard. Here's the great news about Advent. It tells us we can wish that hard. 
We don't need to keep our longings in check because God has entered the story, the history of humanity. He has come into our darkness to help bring us out of that darkness. And He has begun to do so in His Son, Jesus. So doubt can give way to trust. Cynicism and fear can give way to joy. Hope can rise. Isaiah's passage here, written 700 years at least before the arrival of Jesus on earth, gives us three pieces of good news to our longing, three reasons to hope. Firstly, there is a joy you can trust in. Secondly, there's a peace you can rest in. And thirdly, there's a person we can hope in. A joy we can trust in, a peace we can rest in, a person we can hope in a joy we can trust in. In verses 2 and 3, Isaiah describes a future joy that is going to come to the people of Israel. Now, this was written 700 years before Jesus, but in these verses, he uses a past tense. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He's about to say in a couple verses later that it is a future event. He's going to say, that this will be broken, a child will be given to us, the government will be upon his shoulders. So how can he say it's past when a few verses later he says it's future? Isaiah says the great Old Testament scholar Edward Young is using a Hebrew figure of speech called prophetic perfect. He's speaking about the future in the past tense to show how certain that prediction will be. What is happening here? God, through the prophet Isaiah, was predicting the coming of joy in the person of Jesus as a certainty. He is saying, you can trust that this joy is coming. It is certain. And it was, because it did happen. But there are some beautiful things about this certain joy that we are to trust in that I want us just to take note of. Take a look at what it says here. It says, firstly, that it comes to people who do not deserve it. People walking in darkness, it says, have seen a great light. That word darkness in Hebrews means deep darkness. It means the deepest kind of darkness, darkness unto death. It often connotes a kind of evil inside it. It means there's confusion And the Jewish people at the time would have been somewhat offended by this, these connotations of confusion and darkness. God had spoken to them. God had given them His words. God had done miracles for them. He'd revealed Himself in history to them. They were God's favored people. How could they be the ones walking in darkness? Isn't it everybody else? But the gospel says this is actually good news. Because what it's saying here is that even the most religious people, even the people who know the most about God, are still of such a kind that there's a darkness in them and around them. There's still a confusion around them and an evil in them. So what this is actually saying is this. This joy is available to anyone. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter how religious you are or irreligious. It doesn't matter how moral you've been or not. This light comes to people who don't deserve it, and that, it says here, is all of us. The joy is available to you. It is available to anyone. 
Isn't that good news? Secondly, this joy isn't just available to anyone. It is of such a nature that it is meant to go out to everyone. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. This verse seems hard to understand, but let's put ourselves in a Jewish mindset. He's saying the nation that God has appeared to is going to grow. It's going to be multiplied, i.e., the presence of God's going to go beyond the walls of ethnic Israel to the nations. The New Testament clearly says that, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him from whatever nation. You see, this joy is meant to go to the whole world. The gift is for everyone. The joy is available to anyone. The gift is meant for everyone. Finally, there's a third characteristic in the kind of joy it brings, and it says right here, every, it says here that the yoke of his burden, the staff for his, oh, sorry, one up. <laughs> you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They're glad when they divide the spoil. This is a kind of joy of a people who were nervous about an outcome, hoping against hope for a great outcome, hoping that the weather and the rains and, and the soil would turn into a great harvest so they could feed for another year, hoping that this war that was coming against a stronger enemy would go well. And it did. It's a kind of satisfied, grateful joy. That all that you hoped for, even against hope, had happened. That's the kind of joy that is being talked about here. So let's just gaze at the beauty of this for a moment. It's a joy available to anyone. doesn't matter what you've done, what your background is, who you are. It's available to you even if you don't deserve it. And you don't. It's a joy that goes out to everyone. It's meant for the whole world. It's a joy that satisfies even our deepest longings. That kind of joy, says Isaiah, is so certain. I'm speaking as if it had already happened. Men and women, what would have happened to you if the deepest longings of your heart suddenly seemed able to come true or were now certain? I remember um, many years ago being smitten by a, a woman very quickly. I met her, and after an hour, I thought I wanted to marry her. I started telling friends, I'm going to marry this woman. They said, how long have you known her? I said, um, about 45 minutes, and they, they laughed at me, as they should have. But I knew her father. I knew he liked me. I thought this was going to be great. But what I didn't know was that her father had written me off. He decided I wasn't for his daughter. And so he vetoed my interest in his daughter and said, let me pray about it. For three months, I sat there with my deepest longings. I'd finally found a woman who I thought was right for me. But I couldn't even talk to her. I couldn't call her. And then one day, after three months of silence, basically, he, got, he called. I was working for the same organization. It was a business call, but at the end, he said, Hey, my, my son's getting married in a week. Do you want to come? Now, I had been not allowed to even talk to his daughter. I was, I was the, you know, persona non grata. But now, do you want to come to my son's wedding? Sure, I do. Call the next day. How about you come to the rehearsal dinner the night before? 
I don't know what's going on, but my deepest longings, which I'd been tamping down and beginning to wonder if I was, should just let them go, suddenly sprang to life. I said, can I talk to your daughter? He put his daughter on the phone. I said, I don't know what's going on. I just got invited to the rehearsal. And he sa she said, I know. I don't know either, but it's good. Come. And I hung up the phone, and all my hopes sprang to life again. That's nothing compared to what is here. 700 years before God walked the earth in his son Jesus, God let Isaiah know that a joy eternal that satisfies your deepest hopes, that's available to anyone, is so certain that it's as if it had already happened. Implications. Firstly, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, you know that one of the main arguments against believing in Christianity is that we we read this primitive, outdated, mythical religious book that's filled with myths and errors. It's not really worth following intellectually, but here's the truth. Have you read that book? Do you know that there are over 40 predictions written between 300 and thousands of years before his birth about Jesus, and they all came true? Do you know the mathematical improbability of all these passages that talk about his place of birth, that talk about his uh, genealogy, that talk about how he's going to grow up, how he's going to die, that all of these could come true? It's mathematically almost impossible, and that's the point. This is no dusty book of myths. This is God's Word speaking God's certain promises. Doubt your doubts. Secondly, if you're a Christian, these promises of hope in times of darkness were meant to be clung to by people experiencing darkness. We now live in a world filled with darkness, and it's sometimes tough for us to cling to the promises of God who has sent His Son. And what I want to remind us is that God is really working even when the circumstances are darkest, his promises hold true. There's a joy. You can trust him. Trust him. Secondly, there's a peace we can rest in. It's the next few verses where it talks about the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. He's using language here of war. He's saying this joy will come by the cessation of a kind of oppression and by the winning of a kind of victory in a kind of war. What's being talked about here? Well, this, this reference to Midian is a reference to an ancient battle between the Jewish judge Gideon and 300 soldiers against a much larger, more powerful Midianite army. What he's saying here by analogy is that there is a great oppressor, and we now know from the previous verses that this isn't just about Israel, it's an oppressor of all the world, and that oppressor is going to be defeated in war by some seemingly weak event, just like Gideon and the 300. And here it is then, Isaiah is saying, there's an oppressive force that grabs and enslaves all of us. And the New Testament makes clear what that is. Are you ready? It's a small word, sin. The oppressor is sin. Sin is a Christian term 
that describes essentially the self-focused, self-promoting, self-directed inclination in all of us that manifests itself to others as pride, envy, jealousy, selfishness, and a host of other symptoms. With respect to God, it displays itself primarily as a refusal to let God run our lives, autonomy. We run ourselves. This sin creates in us alienation from each other, doesn't it? Don't you find that when you see selfishness in others, it moves you away from them? When I see selfishness in myself, I see my wife moving away from me and then having to challenge me on it. Am I selfish? Yes. Does it create separation from others? Yes. What about God? Well, God is infinitely lovely, infinitely holy, much more sensitive to selfishness than you and I are. It offends Him much more because of the purity of His love. And so when sin interacts with God's standards, it always creates sin and alienation. Isaiah would say later in his book, your sin has made a separation between you and God. This is what's happening here. Sin is the oppressor, and when it meets God in his purity, sin creates alienation. And we feel guilty, and we should. The reality of human sin, interacting with God's holiness and justice, creates the oppression of a universal guilt before a holy God. God, as he expresses himself in what the Bible calls his law, is holy. So listen to Romans 3.19. We know that whatever the law says, that's God speaking, it speaks to those who are under it, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. We are all under the same oppression. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But here's the beautiful thing about this passage. Something breaks that oppression that sin has created in us. Listen to Romans 3 verse 21 and see how the bondage of the oppression of sin is broken. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from God's law, although the Old Testament, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. To us a son is given. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as an atoning sacrifice by His blood. Do you see? Here's the glorious news. Jesus has broken the oppression of sin. He has created rest of this war between humanity and God. This alienation is broken because Jesus broke the brokenness. He came to the world for this purpose, to break the oppression, to break the alienation between us and a holy God. How? By becoming our scapegoat. By taking the sin that separates us from God and paying the debt of it on the cross. He died so we can be freed from the alienation, the state of warfare between God and all humanity. It's broken, and now God is free to enfold us into his love. I went to that rehearsal. I didn't realize that he had set up a whole bunch of his friends and family to interrogate me. 
but he did. And somehow, at the end of that night, without me knowing, I went back to the hotel, something had changed because when I went to the wedding, everyone was congratulating me. They were pushing me into pictures with the bride and groom who I'd just met the night before. They were, obviously, there had been a verdict rendered. I'd gone from the black sheep to the beloved. I'd gone from condemned to justified. How? Well, I don't actually to this day totally know how, but I know this. I know that her father had always liked me. And he considered me as his son already. He'd thought about it. And I know that his daughter, my now beloved wife, had felt a similar attraction to me. And I think between the father and his daughter, his love and affection for me and her desire to see me become part of the family, something changed and he decided to move me from not allowed to allowed. This is just an analogy. But men and women, God the Father, because of the love with which he loved you, conspired with his son before the foundation of the earth that his son would go and die for you. That though you don't deserve his love, he, out of the abundance of it, would pay the debt himself in the form of his son so you could be enfolded into his family. You could move from condemned to justified to beloved. Implications. If you're a Christian, you can rest. Peace with God has been achieved. What shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31. He who did not spare his own son Jesus but gave himself up for us, how will he not graciously give us all things? God loves us. Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen? You can rest in the peace that God the Father and God the Son have orchestrated for you. If you're not a Christian, know that the oppression you feel, it isn't just injustice. It's not just privilege. It's not just racism. It's deeper still. It's the oppression of your own sin. And nothing less than God himself in the form of his son is going to break it within you. Author Craig D. Lonsbrow wrote these words. He said, to embrace the message of Christmas is to throw off my hedonistic rebellion and bow before the chafing reality that I can't save myself. And in that very act, I am suddenly taken aback in that I've stumbled upon the very freedom I've longed for in the very place I never expected it. In God is your freedom. A joy you can trust in. A peace you can rest in. Finally, this is kind of the obvious summary, a person you can hope in. (laughs) This is pretty obvious now who this person is. But he goes on to say, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I'll stop there for the sake of time. 
Look at those descriptors. This human being who's going to be a son as a gift to us will have the whole government, upon, the government of the world upon his shoulders. He'll be a world ruler. But more than that, his name will be Wonderful Counselor. That's a name for deity. And in case we didn't get it, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are words reserved in the Jewish lexicon for the one true God and him alone. You see... This is who we should put our hope in. Think for a moment about all the people you've put your hope in over the years. Probably when you were younger, your parents, then maybe your friends, some teachers, then as you grew older, maybe some leaders. I remember the day, not so long ago, when my friends in the United States were rejoicing, many of them, not all, that the racial barrier had been broken and Barack Obama had been elected and a new day of racial peace was coming to the United States. Do you remember that? Are you old enough? How has that gone? I remember the day when many people in Canada were so happy that a fresh breeze of political renewal had come and Justin Trudeau had been elected for the first time and it felt like a new springtime in politics in Canada may have arrived. How has that gone? These hopes have gotten us nowhere. Our world remains a mess. COVID ravages us. Riots are breaking out all over Europe over the new lockdown. Vaccine measures, vaccine requirements are dividing us down family lines, marriage lines, church lines, friendship lines. Why? Because our solutions aren't going deep enough. As humans, we do not have the power to fix what ails us because what ails us is our sin and we cannot eradicate it ourselves. What ails us is what's embedded within us. We need deliverance. We long for peace, but only God has the power to give it to us. And that's why this is such good news. There was a man who came to be one of us, but he was not just a man, he was God in human form. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name is Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Prince of Peace, because of the way he loved us. This Everlasting Father has become the Prince of our peace, because he loved us with such a love. He loved us enough to live with us, to become a baby and be vulnerable to us, to grow up among us, to teach us, to heal our diseases when he was with us, to feed us when we were hungry, to weep with us when we were sad, to wander among us with no money or power, just his love. And then to willingly submit himself to be nailed to wood and hung as a scapegoat, as a final gift, the supreme gift of his death. So here's the question. If you know that he died for you, and he did, and you know that he rose for you, and he has, can, he, can you trust him now, risen for you, seated at God's right hand, praying for you? Can you trust him? Can you put your hope in him? Are his promises worth believing? Is his guidance worth taking? Are his instructions worth following? I submit to you, of course you can. 
Hope has arrived to this earth in the form of God in a manger, a child who called the everlasting father, a counselor who can free you from your sin, who can make you a new person, who can give you rest from your guilt, rest from your pride, rest from your envy, rest from your insecurities, who can remake you, take the pollution and sin in you and draw it out, who can guide you into peace. This is the hope of Christmas. This is the wonder and the joy and the scandal of Christmas. There's no other religious story this scandalous. No other religious system believes that God could condescend to become a human. That's considered blasphemy in most religious systems, but it's so inviting because it said God loves us so much, He comes right down to us in all of our crap and in all of our brokenness and in all of our evil. He comes into our neighborhood. He comes into our homes. He comes into our souls. And He makes us not guilty. And then He remakes us in His image. I remember watching my wife-to-be walk down the aisle as a bridesmaid for her brother's wedding, hope filling my soul that I would be able to actually date her. Several hours later, her father had pronounced his fatherly blessing and we were allowed to date. And then I remember another wedding, watching her come down with a different dress. I was in my rented tuxedo, she in her bridal gown, and I realized that it had been okay to hope, to trust in God, And it's okay to hope. There is a joy that you can trust in. There is a peace that you can rest in. Because there is someone, Jesus, whom you can hope in. Applications. You may be here and you see little hope in your present circumstances. They may seem dark as the darkest night. I get that. I've been there. But Christ is there with you in the darkness if you're a Christian. He is with you. He knows you. He died for you, and He will bring you out. He has prepared a place for you. As Kingsley said, Advent also anticipates the arrival of Jesus a second time. Whatever darkness we are in, if we are Christians, it is not permanent. He will take us out. He gave His life for you. He put His Spirit in you. He will bring you home. You may be rattled and anxious right now. I can understand that. The rise of the newest variant, the rioting and division all over the world might be shaking you up. Or personal circumstances might have you anxious right now. But hear the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 16. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You may be weary right now. Hmm. I know that feeling as well. You're tired. You're tired of life. Life as you're experiencing it. Life as your friends and you have known it. Tired of the fighting, tired of the division, tired of COVID, tired of the passports, the backbiting, the restrictions, the weight of life right now, whatever. You're tired. The one who knows you, says these words to you. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Joy you can trust. Peace that can give you rest. A person that can give you hope has arrived. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. And I ask now that you, you, and you alone would give us new hope. Hope we need. Hope you have. Hope you are. Help us to trust in that hope. In Christ's name, amen.